The year is 1989. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. I'm Danny Fingeroth. And this is My Marvelous Year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to My Marvelous Year. This is a variant cover edition for 1989. I'm Dave, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Zach Dean, and we are here today to interview Danny Fingeroth, longtime writer, editor, and uh, jack-of-all-trades, really, at Marvel and across the comic scene, and also the uh, recent author. We're coming up about the one-year anniversary of the a Stan Lee biography called A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. Danny, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, did I hit it? Did I hit all the beats yeah, on the, well, uh, the, not all the beats on the bio? The biography, came, the hardcover came out a year ago. The, the paperback just came out about a month ago. So it's, um, mm-hmm. it's more or less the same. There are some mistakes that uh, heavy duty fans uh, probably noticed in the paperback, although 99.9% of people wouldn't, but those have been corrected. Um, the most important one, of course, was I left Jim Salakrup's name out of the acknowledgments. And, uh, mm. you know, I was highly embarrassed about that. So his name is there. And there are a few other. So the paperback is the up-to-date, latest, greatest uh, version. It's, of course, available at all the usual, um, you know, eBooks and Kindle. And um, I read the audiobook myself. So... Um, oh, excellent! That's audiobook. right. That's right. I've been listening to that lately, so I've had your voice in my head for uh, for a wow. few weeks now. Um, how how was how was reading the audiobook experience for you? Like, you how much know, prep went into that? Because it's a lot to read. It's a lot to read, and of course, say it's fourteen hours, which go by like that. Um, but you know, it took like two or three times that amount of time to actually read it. I mean, that's a. It was really fascinating to watch the process and have a director and, uh, you know, director slash editor slash producer working with me. And, um, you know, because, you know, they edit it, you know, you, one makes like, like I'm talking now and there's ums and ahs and sentences start and end in the middle. And you can't do that with an audio book. So it's really a, it's a real art mm-hmm. and a science. So it was really fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, to, to do that. Um, yeah, and and and, and uh, you know that's the the audiobook business is as big or bigger than the print business. I mean, it's huge. So many people yeah. when they say read a book now mean that they've read the audio. I'll tell you one thing I learned though from the audiobook. There's a lot of phrases and words and expressions that we use in writing in everyday life that I don't know about you, mm. but I don't know have any idea how to pronounce a lot of those words. Or- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have that, that problem that, so often lately. Now yeah, that I'm doing a lot more audio, it, yeah, that yeah, yeah. and you, you never think about it because your friends a either don't know if you pronounce something wrong or not, or they're too polite to tell you if they pronounce it. I mean, the phrase, well, <laughs> yeah. it's I guess it's Latin, and it's S U I, and second word G E N E R I S, and I've always said sui generis. I have no mm-hmm. idea. Yep. I just know I had to do like ten takes of it 
than when I had a step. <laughs> you should you should start a podcast. You'll 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 get that feedback quick. That's so, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Were there any uh, were there any elements from the? You said there were corrections that were made from hardcover to paperback. Were there any elements that people called out most frequently that you're glad are now corrected? You know, uh, fortunately for me, for better or worse, it was mostly people in, you know, say I had I had gotten Roy Thomas's age wrong, and so Roy let mm-hmm. me know that I got his age wrong, and I was embarrassed about yeah. that because. When you look at it kind of in context, you go, oh, of course, he couldn't have been this age when this happened. You know, it's a little thing. I think there was one point um, where I meant to write uh, Simon and Kirby, and I wrote Lee and Kirby just because it's kind of that, – that's sort of my default fallback uh, when I'm thinking mm, of yeah. comics yes. teams. So stuff like that. So there was nothing – and again, that I had left – you know, Jim Salakrup was very helpful, and I interviewed him, and he – talk to me about some aspects of Stan's career because he and Stan were, were very close and worked together a lot. So so that I left him out of the acknowledgments when I put in the names of people. You know, I figured with the, I learned an important lesson. Um, you know, Jimmy Pamiati and Joe Cazada years ago when they put out Ash, uh, if you remember that indie comic they had about a fireman mm-hmm. superhero, and when the first issue came out, they had this really long list of acknowledgments and people they thanked, including me. And I remember thinking, I wonder, why aren't they thanking me? I didn't really, you know, I mean, I gave them some work, but it wasn't like I did anything above and beyond. Then, But then I kind of, but then I went, well, it's kind of cool that they thanked me, you know. So, so I mean, it's one of those things uh, <laughs> where it never, you can never acknowledge too many people, you know, because um, sure. it's, yeah. it's better than accidentally you know, leaving uh, people out. So, you know, so, so it was, uh, it, yeah. the book is pretty much the same. I, what I, I have, there's a photo section and uh, I think I found some photos that are not the standard photos you see all over the place of Stan and, 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 uh, and, and of Marvel people. I kind of went out of my way. You know, I, at first I had, when I, when I signed the contract to do the book, you know, you kind of, you're so busy negotiating the hundred other clauses that the thing that says an author will provide photos, you go, all right, I'll worry about that. You know, let me finish the book first and I'll worry. And then you go, oh, crap, I promised all these photos. <laughs> you know? and, uh, but I'm glad I did because it meant that I had, rather than delegating it to an intern at the publishing company to find whatever they could find, I actually had to put in the research and the work and the negotiating to get, I'd say, to get photos. That I think a bunch of them are ones that, that are, if not never seen, and some, some I know were never seen because they were from a photographer who I had a personal connection to. Um, but nice. you know, if, if there's people, an argument for the hardcover over the audiobook, right? You don't, uh, you can't get the photo in the uh, in the audiobook format. That's true, but if somebody wants, I can for the right price, I can call them and describe the fo- the photos to them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right, so we're going to come back to the Stan Lee biography because I think it's very interesting. But I do, I do want to ask you first about your your time at Marvel, sure. um, which is you know spans a, a good you know the eighties and nineties stretch and, and even before that, right? Yeah, so started in the seventies. That... Yeah, right. With uh, with some of that Marvel UK stuff, which is really interesting, right? Uh, to me, and, just because it's and so. I hope you didn't do your research on Wikipedia because Wikipedia generally has a lot of the details around my career wrong. Well, they've been, they've gotten better. You gotta you gotta get a, uh, an intern to do some Wikipedia uh, editing on your behalf. Okay, so yeah, so my career started in, in the 
in 77, where I came to Marvel working as Larry Lieber's assistant, you know, Stan's brother, who was, who had just come back from a company called Atlas, which, um, you know, this is a long story, you know, that I detail in my book about how Martin Goodman, Stan's cousin-in-law, who started the company, had, had started, had sold Marvel, and then for various reasons started a rival company called Atlas. So Larry had just come back from Atlas, and that he he had hired me to be his assistant in uh, 1977. But we can skip ahead to, I want to go to 89. <laughs> no, we don't have to go directly to 89. But what I was going to ask you is just uh, kind of broadly, and you guys can hear me now, right? Yes, yep. Okay, cool. Um, it, it kind of broadly, like, what is, what's the Marvel work that you're proudest of? Uh, you know, you have a, a good run across a variety of titles. What's the thing you look back on as, as your favorite? Oh, boy. Um, you know, as a writer, I, I, um, I, I enjoyed really working on Dark Hawk with Mike Manley. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed, there was a one-shot graphic novel, although we, we printed it as both an Avengers graphic novel and as a Venom graphic novel. Yeah. Called Death Trap the Vault, and I did it with Ron. Yeah, I love that Death Trap. I just read that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I did that with Ron Lim, and I like it because you know, there's a lot of stories where even if the premise is simple, it's still you can drive yourself crazy, sort of you know, coming up with 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 the the story points and the overall summary and 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 pitching it to an editor. Death Trap the Vault was a thing. It, it just came to me. I wrote it up as like a, you know, a half page um, pitch and I sent it to Howard Mackey and he uh, bought it right away. And it was just very kind of, you know, it ended up obviously you're writing a, a, an 80 page story. It's going to have all sorts of twists and turns. But the mm-hmm. premise was sort of elegant, you know, a jailbreak at the supervillain prison with an added tick, literal ticking time bomb uh, in the background. Uh, so I, I can't, and, and, you know, I love the uh, deadly foes of Spider-Man as an editor. I, I yeah. you know, I loved working with uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron friends during their run, uh, with Jam DeMattis and Sal Buscema, you know, I, I was, uh, which, you know, which is not to, you know, take away from anybody else, but those, those people were, were really fun to work with working with Fabian Nicieza and Mark Bagley on launching new warriors was, uh, you know that was a book that everybody made fun of. You know there was a, there was an internal Marvel um, satirical ad done about you know because the New Warriors with all these kind of second string what were thought of as second string teen characters, and uh, whoever wrote the uh, whoever wrote you know the the, the spoof um, house ad the tagline was Marvel Comics. If you didn't buy them, we couldn't print them. <laughs> you know. So, you, know, so you had you had low low expectations for New Warriors, and then which is a, uh, a '90s launch, and then it it superseded those, obviously with, uh, yeah. with I mean because it had some success, right? It had a lot of success, and uh, you know Fabian and I would butt heads all the time uh, on stories, but it ended up making I think for solid and and you know and 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 interesting and not run of the mill stories. They really got into character and 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 uh, you know, but also the instant on the action, you know. But it it you know that was you know it's in a way right. If you take Spider Man, it's nice if you make if you put out good stories, but in a certain way, you know, mm-hmm. Spider Man there's a, there's a certain invulnerability that it has. But when you take something like New Warriors or sure. Moon Knight or or, or 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 Cloak and Dagger or things like that, that people, you know. 
don't have great expectations of and you put out something that's not only good but even you know excellent or or or, or or, uh, you know, I don't want to say great. That's not for me to determine. But, you know, you put out stuff that's, that is that is good. Um, it's nice to be able to do that. It's also less pressure in a way because if, you know, you know if, if people aren't expecting much from a title, then you have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, and, and, and it's sure. a problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you, um, you know, talking about characters who without a lot of expectations, mainly your your time at Marvel was known for being the editor of Spider-Man, but you also wrote a pretty long run of Dazzler. Um, was was Dazzler, was that a, a personal, like, a character you were interested, or was that, that something that you just picked up because it was available? Was it was it foisted upon you? Oh, yeah. How, no, how did that come to be? Nobody had any interest in Dazzler. I mean, that was, I mean it was... Dazzler was a yeah. publicity stunt. It was supposed to be a deal with um, um, with Casablanca Records. Although, oddly enough, I just mm-hmm. uh, recently finished writing. Uh, last year, I wrote the introduction to the Dazzler Masterworks Volume 1. And just a couple of months ago, I wrote oh. the introduction to Dazzler Masterworks Volume 2 because you demanded it. Um, There's a resurgence. There's a resurgence of Allison Blair fandom. You know, pe- yeah. look, there's that saying, the golden age of anything is 12, right? So if you were, mm-hmm. you know, if you were of the right age, and, and look, Dazzler was a, it was kind of a Spider-Man in a disco outfit, you know? I mean, she, it, 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 it there were a lot of mixed messages in Dazzler, to say the least. It was my first regular writing assignment, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot on it. I think we put out, you know, I think me and, uh, and Frank Springer and Vinnie Coletta put out uh, some decent superhero stories. I, you know, reading through it, I have to admit, reading through it for the masterworks, I did a little cringing, you know. Um, um, but uh, they are 40 years old, those stories, so it's hard to, you know, judge them by today's... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's hard to... Uh, you know, it, it was fun to do. It, I, got to, I got to, you know, name a lot of characters after my friends. And I, and I learned, you know, I learned <laughs> what, you know... Even more so than being an editor, I learned sort of what story structure is, what superhero story structure is, what a Marvel, you know, the structure of a Marvel story of that era is. So, um, but it's definitely uh, a strange thing. Like if I had, you know, I mean, I got it through it. I ended up being the writer through a complicated set of circumstances. Um, But if I had been writing you know, Iron Man or Hulk or, or, or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you, you know, and, and you're a beginner and you write some stories, some of which are good, some of which are not so good. There's kind of less embarrassment involved in writing like a bad Dazzler story. <laughs> you know? And it's, uh, mm, it's, it's, sure. it's funny. The character had a lot of attention paid to it because it was, you know, it was, it was Marvel's, one of the few, you know, female superheroes they had. Um, they'd been a big publicity push because it was. It had been this experiment to print something only for the direct market. The direct market had really wanted something. A lot of retailers wanted something just for the direct market, and uh, for whatever reason, Dazzler Number One was chosen. Yeah, it wasn't we weren't? You know, I, I think there was never agreement on what she was. You know, she looked. She she was. You know, I think my favorite Dazzler story is probably early on in my run. Uh, it was a story based on a, a premise by uh, by Tom DeFalco, but 
you know, uh, where, where she uh, becomes the herald, you know, where she fights Galactus and Terex. Yeah. I, th- I thought those are a lot of fun. Yeah, I've read those. Yeah. Those, those were fun. You know, I, I think at a certain point, um, you know, again, reading them, I, I read like, you know, you know, 20 issues at a time to write these introductions, which isn't how they were intended to be read originally, you know, but I mean, sort of issue after issue, I'm not sure if I want to be a superhero. I'm not sure if I want to be a superhero. And, uh, yeah. you know, as I said, there was this weird, you know, you know, my joke about Dazzler, but it's kind of true, is that she did take more showers than the average uh, superhero, you know. Um, <laughs> she, was, she was very, she was very yeah. you know. Um, so it was, I think we clean. were, yeah. you know. Although, again, I'm also proud that one, uh, I don't want to mention her by name, but an editor who went on to, 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 to you know, to great accomplishment in the comics business, um, once told me that I wrote the best women in comics. Now, again, that was in the early 80s, so I think there's probably been some people, including women, who've written better women in comics than I did. But at least at least for a time, oddly enough, Dazzler was seen as some kind of feminist figure. Um, but like I said, it was a learn. The, the thing about comics, uh, you know, is that it's a learn-while-you-earn uh, kind of business. You, know, course, you, yeah. you do this stuff when, when you're young, and uh, you know you hope it's at a professional level, whether it's writing or editing or drawing. Um, but whatever it is, it goes out there. People buy it, and it exists. Apparently, it now exists forever on the internet. You know? So it's right. not yeah. twenty well, issues at a time, uh, too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, on on heavy duty glossy paper between uh, you know the seventy five dollar uh, list price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can I ask you? Um... So you were probably working along under Jim Shooter at that time, correct? Yes. Uh, what, what what was it like working working with him as a, as editor in chief? Um, I, you know, this is this is one of those uh, questions. I guess it's you know it's a you know this is the thing that I find people younger people most interested in. What was Jim Shooter really like? You know? Yeah. I would, oh, I, I guess I guess I mean. Like, what do you, what do you, I, I, I guess maybe I can narrow it down. What, yeah. what do you, what was a positive, um, professional, you know, experience working with him? You know, what, what do you think he excelled or didn't excel at professionally? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily Jim, need to get into the, you know, your personal relationship. Jim was a master. No, but also what was the most controversial? <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, could be Dave our screaming dirt, headline. But... <laughs> Look, Jim, 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 was a, <laughs> Jim was a real, um, and I say this as a compliment, was a real mechanic of comic book storytelling. He really mm-hmm. understood uh, what, you know, you know the, the story about him, as you know, is he was, uh, as a kid, he was ill, and uh, I think either he was in the hospital or just he was ill at home, and, and he had to make money to help support his family. He was a teenager, and he, and he thought he could write comics, but he thought he, you know, he thought he could write comics not well enough for Marvel, but maybe he get work at DC, and what he did was he analyzed Stanley's uh, stories and how Stanley told the story, and how Mar- you know, and how he and Kirby and Ditko um, paced the story and developed character and developed action. And Jim really had a profound understanding uh, of you know of of why people read fiction, of why people read superhero comics. 
um, of what of what's necessary to give a what we used to call uh, a complete unit of entertainment, you know, even in a continued mm -hmm. story. I think Mark Grunewald coined that phrase. So Jim really had this wide and deep understanding um, of story structure and and of the motivations of the heroes and villains at Marvel. He'd really studied it uh, almost like a graduate student, you know, so that... Um, and and he and so I think he brought that to Marvel at a period when there were you know screaming high peaks of creativity and 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 explosions of of wonderment, but also a lot of pretty crappy forgettable stuff. And and you know I think he was able to uh, understand and convey to other people, to writers, editors, and artists what. Uh, what you know, since he embodied Marvel in that era, what Marvel considered uh, effective storytelling, you know, and and and, and that's, that's that's no small thing to be able to understand that uh, and to be able to convey it, and 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 in the midst of it, to have some really, you know, I mean, that's the era Claremont and Byrne, and you know, mm -hmm. uh, the Madison Zeck on, on Captain America, and um, mm -hmm. you know, the yeah, various some, you know, some of our favorites and, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 so I think Jim uh, creatively brought that. You know, he was um, adamant in what he wanted, and um, not always the most tactful in expressing how he wanted it. And so, not everybody uh, loved working with him. But I, I think there's a case to be made, and I got along well with him for the most part. You know, um, I think there's a case to be made that at a certain point in the '80s that. You know, Jim Shooter, uh, Frank Miller, and maybe one or two other people kind of saved the industry uh, when it when it, when it was when it you know when it could easily have disappeared or just become um, lunchboxes and and sippy cups and uh, and, and, and pajamas. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, there, there were there were several periods in the in the seventies. You know, when I came to work there in 77, I mean, the, you know, the attitude was kind of, well, this is a quaint folk art that we're engaged in, and these are probably its last days. Let's try to enjoy it, and last one out, remember to turn off the lights. I mean, it really, uh, <laughs> you know, was... Is that how you got, like, uh, Gerber and Starlin and et cetera working in that, that period, kind of doing some of their, the, the stuff that, that seems even weird by, you know, the, the 70s, you right. know, like the... More, more off the wall stuff that uh, just bucked the trend of superhero comics. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, you know, I'm not. That, it's not a judgment on the quality of the comics. It's just sort of the idea. Even before the internet, you know, there were people at all these other alternatives for where to get their entertainment, and uh, and and, mm -hmm. and 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 that's an era. You know, now we go into the whole. This is before the real rise of the of the comic book shop and the direct market. So you had. Um, the the decline of the mom and pop candy store and drug store where 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 kids and teenagers could buy comics in the you know 40s 50s 60s suddenly the the suburbanization was happening a kid could no longer walk a bike ride to a candy store or drug store and so there was that period before, you know just at the beginning of the direct market and just as those other outlets were were um were declining when they or even if 
you know, uh, kids didn't even know uh, that there were comics. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I had I had a niece and nephews, and you know, I don't think comics were really on their radar, which is ironic because they got could have gotten all the free comics they wanted, but you know, it just <laughs> wasn't it just wasn't uh, a thing. You know that you know I guess that's why that Dazzler number one was a big deal because it did. Uh, show the power of the direct market that that you could sell four hundred thousand non-returnable copies of a of a title. Yeah, wow. yeah, that is interesting. So I'm I'm curious too along those same lines. So like in the in the '80s when you're working on Dazzler, um, you're you're working as an editor through that time as well. And then you took kind of a, a break, if you will, in that you left kind of sort of the editorial side. You took on more freelance writing work, and then you came back later as an editor, and you eventually became the group editor. Of Spider-Man right. uh, through the like ninety-one through you know whenever uh, ninety-six uh, approximately right, um, whenever things started to go south. <laughs> did you did you view like a changing of audiences? You know, like in the way you were approaching comics during that time? Because I know huh. I've heard you say in an interview in the eighties it was definitely more like a younger. You know, the the intention was probably these are like twelve to fifteen year olds reading this. Did when you came back in the nineties? Post Watchmen, post Dark Knight Returns, right? Post that kind of wave. Did you have a different view of who your audience might be? You know, it's interesting. You know, it's an interesting question because I don't know if I mean, look, I was aware. Look, the rise of Marvel in general and the Silver Age of comics in general had a lot to do with the fact that there were guys like Jerry Bales and Roy Thomas who were suddenly writing to Stan Lee and Julie Schwartz. And 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 um, and and those editors were getting the message that like oh you know these are people who were reading the comics when they were kids in the forties and they haven't stopped reading so they I think they yeah. and even it even leads to Will Eisner and the rise of the graphic novel you know by the way that I mentioned on the chair of Will Eisner Week which I'll plug later but um, oh please yeah. I, mean, I mean all those things sort of connect. Um, so Marvel started this thing, I think, of the of catering to a somewhat older audience, even when they were largely for children in the sixties. I think you know, I, I I must have been because there were stories that I edited that had, you know, without shoving it in your face, they had mature content. You know, they they alluded mm-hmm. to things. Um, so, you know, I I, I boy that I. I think it was almost more that I saw what my peers were doing and the stories they were writing and for what, you know, for whatever. And it seemed like, okay, the bar has been raised in terms of the kind of topics and the, and the maturity level, even though we're still abiding by the comics code. Um, You know, I'd say since I largely worked on things like Spider-Man and uh, new warriors I always had in mind whoever sort of the 12 year old me, you know, I figured it's fine. Let's, let's put in stuff. And again, this was always what Marvel excelled at, right? Let's put in stuff that's there for older readers so that there's multiple levels of meaning if somebody wants them, but let's not forget that they're, that these are, uh, you know, spandex-clad characters punching each other, um, and and, yeah. and um, you know, and kind of emoting on a on a on a, on a um, Shakespearean level about mm-hmm. uh, teen love and 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 issues of right and wrong and power and responsibility. 
So that's a, you know, that's a really good question. And I'm trying to sort of time travel in my mind back to me when I, when I came back on staff in, in 89. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I don't know if I ever articulated it that way, but I certainly had a sense that there was an audience for, you know, f for more mature material. But, you know, in the, in the late 80s, there were still a lot of kids reading comics. I mean, if you read the letters, a lot of them were, you know, written in pencil or, you know, ballpoint pen. And you and you could, you know, you could you could see that. I guess it was working in that sense that we were appealing to people on multiple levels. But you know, but again, maybe 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 I got a skewed view because so much of what I did was involving characters like Spider-Man. But there were. You know, there was, in 1989, 1990, 91, there was still a robust, you know, I mean, it wasn't, as we were just saying, it wasn't what it had been, but there was a pretty bust, you know, newsstand market. There were still people, you know, who got their comics fix at at the, at Barnes & Noble when they carried comics or at, you know, at local mom-and-pop stores. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I bought my first comics. I bought some Spider-Man in the, the late 90s. My first yeah. Spider-Man comics were at... Uh, the same place we bought our like night crawlers to go fishing with, you know, in like rural Maine, right? Definitely wasn't a, a comic book shop. So, well, I mean, all you all you have to do to sort of get a reality check is to go to a family function with your, you know, with your aunts, uncles, and cousins. Because I, I have to tell you, no matter, you know, no matter how many people read my comics, and no matter how much money I made, no matter how popular what I did was, my relatives, very nice, very smart people, you know, they still, you know. Basically, they thought it was very cute that I was doing comic books, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, so yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, isn't it cute? And uh, you know, it's nice that they're still putting these things out for little Billy and little uh, Sally. You know, I mean, um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there are, you know, especially now there are graphic novels that you know that are not for children. By the same token, actually, one of the great things about our the modern era is how many comics for children there actually are you know i mean holy cow reina tegmeyer yeah. reina tegmeyer and dov pilkey i mean you know marvel and dc would massive, uh massive books yeah you know which is good because i yeah. mean for a while there was this fear that oh my god children are not learning how to read comics they're not you know just neurologically they're not they're not acclimating to how to even you know, right? I know people with you know PhD level educations who literally cannot read a comic book. They don't understand. Yeah, they're not wired to like coordinate the words and pictures. So you know, I, I think it, I think it's great that now actual children, you know, and then are learning to read comics, and then they'll move on to the sophisticated graphic novels and whatever else. Right, right. Were you interested ever interested in moving into, you know, the more adult-oriented graphic novels. I've seen, I've saw that, you know, you wrote the, the Rough Guide to Graphic Novels, so clearly that's a, you know, yeah. interest of um, you, but, but, but working in that? Well, I mean, uh, people who know me know that I've, that the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, um, I actually, in the Rough Guide, there's actually a, a graphic novel that I did, uh, blanking on the guy's name, um, but within that, there's kind of a semi-serious graphic novel um, oh, I'll, I'll think of his name. He's a very well-known um, British uh, cartoonist and graphic novelist. I have, um, for a number of years, um, been um, 
I've written it already, but I, I'm working with an artist named Rick Geary, whose work you may know from National Lampoon and other uh, and some underground venues. You know his work. He does a lot of true murder mysteries. Anyway, Rick and I have been working for years on a graphic novel biography of Jack Ruby, the guy who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, everybody knows that picture of Ruby stepping up and killing Oswald. Um, yes. Yep. Uh, well, Ruby was uh a fascinating character and he falls into my own personal interest group of you know history comics pop culture in a weird way and quirky jewish americans you know so those are so ruby hit my sweet spot and all that so I, i've written a 180 page graphic novel that um uh everybody who sees the script and and the sample pages says i would buy that but uh you know, but then um, fi finding funding for to, you know, I mean, you know, I, I've written it already. So kind of that and, and research it. And I know way more about the Jack Ruby than anybody really should. Um, <laughs> and uh, so if anybody out there is a publisher that is interested in so so th so that's, you know, that's sort of my own personal foray into um, nonfiction, historical you know, um, sex and violence uh, graphic novels. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's and, and as I as I alluded to before, uh, for the past ten years or so, I've worked with the Will and Ann Eisner Foundation and the Will Eisner Studios, running uh, something called Will Eisner Week for them, which is a you know Eisner's birthday. He died in in two thousand five, of course, but his birthday March sixth. So every year at the beginning of March. We uh, encourage and um, and 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 um, reach out to people um, such as yourselves with podcasts or or schools and universities and bookstores and comic book shops to hold events, um, not just about Will and his career and 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 his work in the spirit and the graphic novels, but just about um, spreading the word and the love of graphic novels and sequential art and free speech. Uh, as well as the legacy of Will Eisner in general. Um, needless to say, this year is a little different um, yes. because yes, people are not having events in stores and colleges. So actually, I just uh, just before I got on with you guys, I was uh, working on strategizing, you know, how to help people who still want to do events celebrating Eisner and the graphic novel to do it virtually. Um, you know, and, and, and what tools we can help them with. So if anybody is interested, willeisner.com would be to find out um, what's available, you know, because we know that not everybody has the ability this year to do events even virtually. They may be just, you know, ill or distracted or busy. So we are making a certain amount of material available from uh, Will Eisner Central that, you know, the people can use all a part of, you know, in addition to or instead of what they might have done. But uh, but we did grow it. When I started about 10 years ago, we had like one event in, in, in New York at Jim Hanley's Universe, where I was very proud of myself. I, I found I uh, the uh, much-missed Dennis O'Neill and a scholar named Chris Couch um, and a couple mm -hmm. other people. And then I found, uh, uh, through a friend of mine, through my editor, a continuum on my books, Superman on the Couch and Disguised as Clark Kent, if you know those books, my editor, Amanda Lumpke, mm -hmm. uh, put me in touch with Will Eisner's best friend from high school. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. 
So I had that guy who was like 90-something and in incredible shape. And so we've grown it from that, you know, like one or two events in the New York area to over 100 events worldwide last year, you know, that, that wow, were, nice. you know, so, um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I'm very much, you know, I'm, I'm obviously still very much interested in superheroes. I've written books about them. I give presentations, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also really um, fascinated and intrigued by the idea of the graphic novel as, yeah. you know, as a, as a form of literature that's taken seriously um, all over the world and by people uh, of all ages. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, yeah. my training is in, is in filmmaking. I went, I went to film school and uh, I'm very interested in, in, you know, as, as Harvey Picar said, you know, in words and pictures, you can do anything with words and pictures. I was, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, am, I was and am a huge fan and proponent of, of Harvey Picar. For a number of years, you know, I, 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 for about four years, I traveled with the Wizard World convention uh, chain, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, much to their credit, and and it was a lot of fun. They, I, I, I would do all sorts of, I, I mean, I did the usual panels like here's famous guy number one that you know, and you know, he'll talk for an hour, but they let, I did a lot of stuff about comics and history, independent comics. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I, I you know both it, it's it's you know and, and yeah, I like I like to feel that my expertise and my interest have have grown um, you know without abandoning the superheroes you know in into sure. other aspects. And, and you worked on that the magazine about the the, the like creation of comic books for a while, right? Called, right, right right now right now W R I T E N O W. I'm not saying it's the greatest title or the most ingenious title but it was it was it was kind of writer's digest for um for comics and animation and that was that was yep. you know that was good because fortunately for me i had no training as a journalist so that meant kind of that i didn't have to follow a lot of those journalistic rules i mean i learned you know i learned pretty quickly why they exist but i did a lot of interviews in depth with people I remember I did I did an interview with Eisner himself that before I was associated with uh, the foundation and the studio, in which I thought I remember preparing for it, thinking, "Could I ask Will Eisner even one question that he's never been asked before?" Right. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he complimented me on my questions, and look, maybe he complimented everybody, but that was. And I interviewed Stan a lot, and I interviewed, you know, people both, uh, you know, old timers uh, and new people. Um, you know, I, I did a number of interviews over the years with Al Jaffe, um, especially in the New York area, as well as at Wizard Shows and the San Diego Con, the New York Con. I did a calculation. I think in the past 15 years, I've done like six or 700 panels <laughs> with, oh, wow. okay. with people. And so, you know, it, it, and as you guys know, interviewing, you, you know, you may think you know what answer you're going to get or where a conversation is going to lead, but you very often don't um sure. yeah. yeah so you know i've been, I, i've interviewed and, and you know but a lot of it started with the right now magazine which again which, people yeah. you know one thing i'm proud of, of of my post-marvel career is that very often at conventions people will come up and thank me either for one of my books like superman on the couch especially or disguised as clark kent or they'll thank me for right now magazine for getting their career started or 
or or for like some master's thesis they wrote, and it's very, you know, it it's because you know you know how it is. You put stuff out into the world, you know, and you think you've done a good mm-hmm. job, and you think it's interesting, you think it's of value to people, either in terms of information or education or or or, or entertainment, but you don't really know until people actually come up yeah. and, and say, hey, that really made a difference in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that, I I mean those those are I found them online uh, all the back issues of of right now and I was skimming through uh, I think it might be actually the one you were talking about number twenty with uh, the spirit was the the main cover story. Well, I think I uh, think it's, and, it was um, five and then we reprinted it in twenty. Yes, because that's when the spirit movie was coming out. Okay. Same interview. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Real. Yeah. Really. Really. Um. Fascinating stuff. I I think those those just reading through those they seem a little timeless, right? If you're interested in the comics that you're reading or uh comics from that period or at all you know i think those those can still be gone back to and glean a lot of uh good information from those. Well, thank you what i what i tried to do with that yeah. magazine is uh you know the focus was writing but but i also it's sort of impossible to talk to somebody about their career as a writer without getting into their history and the history of the industry you know the thing that i always mm-hmm. found most fascinating um was I'd ask people how they got into the business. Or, you know, what was your first professional job? And they'd say something like, oh, well, you know, I was having lunch with John Byrne, and he suggested I call, you know, and, and I went, and I go, well, how did you get to be somebody having lunch with John Byrne? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'd have to, I don't mean to pick on John. I mean, I'm just, this like a name I picked out of, you know, as a, as a superstar name. But I mean, I'd have to, these people who were master storytellers, I'd have to walk them back through their own lives to see, because what my aim was, obviously you can't imitate the career of J.M. DeMattis or Tom DeFat, you know, but what can you learn from how they started their careers? Who do you know who might be able to introduce you to somebody or get you in the door or get you, I mean, that was my intention, but it's just so funny how, um, and I'm probably the same way, you know, but when, when when you ask somebody what got you in the door, it was really, um, and it was just funny because, like I said, these people are master storytellers. But to get them to go, oh, well, here's this thing, you know, and they walk it back three steps to whatever it was that got them that break, and and uh, I, I, that that to me was one of the fascinating things about those interviews because it was inevitable. You'd have somebody really smart, really self-aware, really great storyteller, and then they just would hit this this brick wall. Of when they what what their real break was, you know, they would start like, you know, well, there I was with Francis Coppola, you know, wait, how, how did you get? <laughs> not not good enough at mythologizing their own origin story, right? Uh, well, yeah, or or just I don't know what, but it was a it, it, it was a common thing, and as I said, maybe I do it myself. Um, uh, but but it was just anyway. But with that magazine, so the magazine, the intent was both through interviews and, as you know, through. Uh, what I called nuts and bolts, which was, mm-hmm. yep. you know, uh, script and art and and how they translated. But but thank you. Yeah, that magazine was, um, it was a labor of love. So, yeah, definitely going back to to something you said a minute ago. Let's let's get into yeah. Stanley and the biography here a little bit because you're talking about yeah. mythologizing your origins, and I think that's something. <laughs> that well. yeah. yeah, good good segue, Dave. <laughs> you know, um, what I I have two kind of big stand questions for you. I, I'll start with this one. So you you were doing the research here, and I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about the biography is 
the the historian, right? The the level, the role of historian, not only of Stan's life, but of like comics as an industry, is very compelling. I mean, there were definitely pieces, especially in like the fifties, you know, that that post Golden Age, post uh, you know, timely stuff, but right. pre Marvel, where it's really kind of open and interesting to me because those aren't the, the times in the comics we talk about as history goes. What was the stuff that surprised you the most? researching the life of stan lee or maybe just the thing you were most pleased with yourself for having uncovered like something that you yeah. knew not a lot of people knew um you know i um i think the most surprising thing you know i guess no matter how many times i learned about it is how big a company marvel was in the 40s and 50s up until 57 mm -hmm. you know the yeah. marvel the marvel you know the, the again the the creation myth is it was this little company and they almost went out of business and they then they decided to you know to go for broke and they put out the fantastic four and spider-man and they became the little engine that could and they eventually overtook dc and now they're this you know um behemoth uh, in movies and games and tv but up until 1957 where they made some um, where, where Martin Goodman made some unfortunate distribution choices. Marvel was putting out timely Marvel Timely Atlas was putting out seventy-five or eighty comics a month. Even even when the business was imploding and other companies were shutting their doors, they yeah. were putting out an incredible volume of stuff. I guess also that Stan did a large volume of writing, much of it not superheroes. I mean, especially when there were no superheroes to be put out, but he. He preferred, uh, certainly in those days, comedy and romance and and, uh, and some monster stories. Um, you know, and, and I, you I guess... you were reading recommendation from that time period that you would say I, people should check out? Because you, you've probably read more of Stan's pre-Marvel work than just about anybody. Was there something you know, there that you're like, people should really read this? You know, a lot of it is forgettable, but it was all it was all clever. You know, it was... I, I'd say the, bro, the Millie the Model stuff he did with Stan Goldberg was delightful. Very light I comedy. Love, I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you can see the yeah. beginnings of Marvel in it, and 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 of, and of course the the monster stuff he did with Kirby, the uh, sure. you know Grow Two and but even the stuff um, from the fifties, a, a comic called Menace, which was um, Menace. I think kind of riffing on the EC comics of the era. They were like twist ending uh, yeah. horror or suspense stories. Um, a lot of the you know stuff. I'm not sure how much he himself wrote, but he, you know, Marvel was so large. I mean, it sort of was like what it is has been, you know, say in the 80s and 90s. It was bureaucratized. There was the editor in chief. There were people, including you know, Mad Magazine's Al Jaffe worked for Stan for 10 years. I guess the thing, one of the things surprised me, was the thing that Stan had in common with Eisner is that at some point everybody worked for one of those guys. If you were if you were in New York or even not, I guess, you know, if you were in the comic book business as an artist especially, because Eisner kind of was known as for training people and because the spirit section and the other stuff Eisner did, the military, you know, the PS magazine, Eisner produced a large volume of material and Timely produced Timely Atlas produced an enormous quantity. And don't forget comics were first 64 and then 48 pages. So there was a lot of... So everybody, you know, Jerry Robinson, who's most famous for Batman, worked for Stan for 10 years as a freelancer. Al Jaffe worked yeah. on staff as an editor. Uh, just, you know, everybody went, you know, 
Bernard Kriegstein, who didn't get along with Stan and is most famous for his EC work, did tons more yeah. stories for Atlas than he ever did for EC. You know, I mean, just by volume, yeah, and a lot of them amazing. were right. Um, so, um, I, I'd say one an interesting article I found, and and uh, is if, if you know the name Judith Christ, she was a um, she was one of the most famous film critics of the '60s and '70s because she not only I, wrote. I only for, know it from your book, yeah. Yeah, well, she wrote for a major New York newspaper, but she was on the Today Show. She was the Today Show film critic, so everybody knew Judith Christ. Um, and I ended up, oddly enough, living in the same building as her. But for that reason, I never bothered her because I thought it was inappropriate. And then one day, I had to hell, I said to hell with it, and I put a note under her door. And then she agreed to be interviewed, although she wouldn't be interviewed in person. Even though we lived 12 feet apart, she'd only be interviewed by phone. But I interviewed her about... <laughs> Sure. She, was, she, it turned out, as a young uh, newspaper woman, had been um, a popularizer of Frederick Wortham's uh, ideas about how... Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think she admired him, but she whether or not she did, she certainly popularized him. And uh, so there's a lot of articles with her byline, not the, the most famous one from Collier's called Horror in the Nursery, and everybody knows that. But she wrote a lot about comics, a lot about Wortham, and there's one um, uh, a clipping I found from 1947 where she goes to interview who she identifies as Stanley Lieber, the editor of, uh, of Timely Comics. And yeah. you know, she manages to get Stan to say some really horrible quote about something like, you know, we're businessmen trying to make a living and we can't, you know, we can't be concerned if some uh, crazy kid goes and does some crazy thing after reading one of our... I mean... I'm sure she spoke to him. You know, she did her job. She spoke to him, I'm sure, for an hour and found the most horrible quote from Stan. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that, that was sort of my most fun piece of, uh, and I, and I, of research. And I did a lot of research, actually, for a book I did for Tomorrow's, who published right now, Roy Thomas and I did the Stanley Universe book in 2011. And, that, and, yeah, and, yeah. and then I went to Stan's archives at the University of Wyoming, oddly enough, where they have a, a robust... American pop culture uh, archive, including like 200 boxes of Stan stuff, remarkably unredacted. I found you, know, you can you certainly cannot say that Stan, you know, went through stuff and took out anything that made him look bad. But yeah, you know, so uh, just stuff I found there, just notes from Francis, enough uh, from, from Mario Puzo rather, um, just just fascinating stuff relating to Stan's life and career and. Um, you know, but yeah, but maybe that Judith Christ article, in, in some ways, is the is the most interesting. You know that he was he wasn't celebrity stand then, but he was somebody in the public eye and somebody that a reporter would go to and would give a reporter a quote because I you know I think a lot of comics guys were wary of reporters, especially in those days, and and even even if it meant some free publicity, they didn't want to you know they didn't want to give anybody an interview, but. You know, I yeah. guess in a way you can see Stan, um, you know, getting a taste of, you know, even though the quote made him look bad, on the verge of maybe some kind of celebrity. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. What do you what do you think? So Stan, as a figure, once he does get into Marvel, obviously there's the big sort of debate and controversy even now. And you talk about this in your book, I, I think, very uh, even keeled is is the debate around credit, right? And and who yeah. did what, and him versus Jack, and him versus Steve, and all these things. 
I'm, I, I've heard a lot about that, right? And there's a lot of conversation around that. And again, I think you cover it quite well in your book. I'm actually a little more interested in the inverse. What do you think Stan doesn't get enough credit for that he did well? Because obviously he was very good at getting credit as the Marvel guy. And even now people know <laughs> yeah. him. It, like he's, he's a celebrity in a way that I don't know that you ever could have predicted purely from comics, just in terms of the cameos and movies and TV and whatnot. What do you think are the things he did as a an actual comics writer, editor, et cetera, that maybe he gets not enough credit for? Um, that's, a, that's a good question, and it's, and it, 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 in a way it's unanswerable. I would say, look, you had these geniuses, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Uh, but you also had Stan, a genius named Stan Lee and a genius named Martin Goodman. Um, I think all four of those people, without any one of them, you wouldn't have had Marvel Comics. Um, but I think what Stan was a great synthesizer. You know, Stan could take the elements and mix and match them and 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 so and amplify them and make them relatable to an audience you know so i i think you you know i think almost like a movie more like a producer than a director and yet i and yet by saying that i realize i'm giving him short shrift as a writer because i think he was a terrific writer as well you know i mean again and this is stuff that's so lost in history but even if kirby and ditko kirby and ditko came up with many of the plots and many of the characters and that's not 100 percent clear I think it took Stan to to realize what was there, and to and to mold it. You know, I mean, for better or worse, Stan was the writer, editor, art director, uh, and essentially their boss. You know, I mean, he the only one that he had to answer to was Martin Goodman. But I think they, you know, just the year before, Kirby had been doing the Fly at Archicom. You know, I mean. There was no guarantee that superheroes are going to be popular just because the DC heroes were popular. There was something that Stan brought to it, and maybe it was desperation. Maybe it was the last thing he was going to do before he quit. Um, you know, I try to in the book I try to recount all those different stories and possibilities, but sometimes things just happen with people, and and the result is these is these uh, amazing comics that 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 they're still you know, uh, milking for billions of dollars at the movies today. Those are, you know, I mean, obviously they're using Starlin stories yeah. and lots of other people's stories, but it goes back to what Stan and Jack right. and Stan and Steve did. Totally, totally. Yeah, no, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Cool. All right, Zach, did you have any uh, specific questions for Stan? Otherwise, i got a couple to wrap it up with. No, please, please go on. <laughs> Stan is not here, but I'm channeling. Yeah, well, totally. <laughs> right, right. You said you have questions for the Stan book. Yeah, that's what, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did have one question from a patron here. Okay. Uh, the question was, what person came before you in the comic book industry that you wish you most had the chance to work with? Huh. What person? That's a that's an interesting question. Because I have, because I've worked with Stan, you know, I've been Stan's editor, which was weird. Um, yeah, sure. um, I'd love to have worked with Kirby, you know. Um, uh, I'd like to have, you know, worked with Will Eisner. Um, huh, that's a, I don't know if I ever quite thought of uh, that question that way, but those were, you know, th th those are the first two that spring, that spring sure, to mind. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, it's sort of, in a way, it's a two-part question. In a way, it's a two-part question, because there's some people I'd like to be a fly on the wall for, but not necessarily work, I'd like to know them, yeah. but not necessarily yes. work with them. Uh, um, and then people, you know, 
who you actually would like to work with. God, that's a that's a really um, uh, I don't know because I've been I've been honored to know a lot of people. You know, especially thank you know it's funny I didn't really come to being a historian till like the '90s and really more more like the 2000s. But luckily, thanks to modern medical science, a lot of people who in an, you know were kept alive long enough. You know, long enough for me to talk to them and to get to know. Mm -hmm. You know, the most notable being Al Jaffe, who is who just who turned ninety. Well, I guess he's closer to a hundred. He's yeah, Al. Al is on the way to a hundred wow, in yeah. March. Um, so and Al and Al worked with Stan and 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 was very they were very fond of each other. Um, yeah, I mean, it would have been great to be just a fly on the wall in the mad offices in the early days. You know, who I would like to have worked with. It's funny, Ditko has drawn stories I've written, which is surreal. You know, I've worked as Stan's editor, um, so I got to do that. Um, yeah, I'd say to work somehow in the Eisner Studios with with all those guys, you know, Jules Pfeiffer and um, um, and Lou Fine and, 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 and uh, yeah, Eisner had incredible people. So I, I think just sort of being around those people and yeah of course i would have been thrilled if jack kirby ever drew a story i, I wrote yeah. or something you know or, or if i ever got to well, that would have been kind of yeah, wild that would be cool well, thanks peter for that question that was a good one danny uh what would you like to plug before we let you go thanks for being so generous with your time uh yes, what do you want you. what do you want people to know about oh thank you well i want people to know that the marvelous life the amazing story of stan lee is now out in paperback the audiobook the hardcover is still available um, if somebody wants to get in touch with me, they can, it's Danny at DannyFingeroth.com. And I'm also all over Facebook as my main social media. And, um, I'm available for, um, speaking engagements, consulting, uh, writing, editing, um, of course, model, modeling, of course, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm just way left there, yes, um. Um, and, uh, and, and Will Eisner Week is coming up, uh, which is a celebration of Eisner and the graphic novels coming up in March. You can find out more at willeisner.com. You can find out more about me at dannyfingeroth.com. Uh, but the, uh, the Stan Lee book is still, um, especially because the paperback just came out. I think people, you know, I think people either tend to idealize or yeah. vilify Stan, right? They, they have these extreme views of him as the most horrible guy that ever lived or the most wonderful guy that ever lived. And, you know, the truth is, like most of us, there's somewhere in between. He did some shitty stuff. He did mostly good stuff. A lot of people liked him. A lot of people didn't like him. But he's there's no escaping him. He's one of the most important figures in, in popular culture of all time. And a very complicated, interesting uh, person. Um, and so I think, I think even if... Even if you think you know, um, you know, I mean, the best compliments I've had about the book have been people um, who have called it even-handed, which I, I think you did, and I appreciate that. You know, uh, there are some people who will never be satisfied uh, with any book that says anything good about Stan, and uh, I, I can't satisfy those people. You know, as long as they buy the book, uh, I'm happy, <laughs> you know. And even if, even if they get it out of the line, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> but don't pilot it, um, you know. But I, I think I think because in the book, um, it's again I tried to make it a good, interesting read, but it's also footnoted because I hate history books that don't have footnotes. Because then how do you know there's any 
anything backing up what the writer is saying, even if the book is well written. So I'd say give it a shot. You know, even even if you think you know everything about Stanley and the history of Marvel, uh, give it a shot. I think I put it in a, in a context that's that's different than other things you may have seen. Definitely, definitely. I I felt like I had a lot of knowledge going into it, and I was glad to have read it um, or to have listened to it, as you pointed out earlier. Not quite the same as reading. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to it. Yeah, no. That's I'll, right. If you if you enjoyed listening. If you, the listener, enjoyed listening to this past hour and a half, imagine 14 hours of me reading the audio book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Perfect. Well, Danny, could, thanks so much for your time. Be, what could be more reassuring in this uncertain age? <laughs> Danny, thanks so much for your time. This has Thank been you very uh, much. a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. We appreciate it very much. Uh, we're just going to sign off here real quick as we as we do because we forgot to do this during our last interview. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can find support for My Marvelous Year at patreon.com slash year. Music for the show is by Disasterpiece. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at Comic Book Herald. He's Zach. You can find him at My Marvelous Year on social. Uh, what did I forget, Zach? We'll be back with no, 89 coverage here soon. Anything else? Yes. Nope, that's about it. All Thank right. Thanks, everybody, much. for listening. And as always, we will see you next year. See you next year.